I've never seen my weeders, but I know they're not for me. I've never seen a real weeder posing on TV. A real weeder doesn't dance or prance in a parade against themselves. A weeder prints and presses and makes of me a reader. I see a lot of guesses, but I don't see any weeders. Today I woke up and I felt rather like revolutionary, so I was like, I'm going to write a poem for the, for the streets. Wow, I like that poem a lot. It's very rousing, some may say. Thank you. I would say that, but <laughs> um, I thought it'd be a good lead into our first question of the day, which is what does degrown governance look like? Because I figured we'd be talking a lot about big concepts, definitions, structures, mm -hmm. visions, but I wanted to keep central the idea that government is mostly defined by the people in it. Mm -hmm. So even in a system which is maybe conceptually more exploitative or less efficient than another one, mm -hmm. if it has more virtuous, noble, selfless, intelligent leaders mm -hmm. in the government, then it will produce better results, better yeah, governance. Certainly. We sometimes look at government as just a mass. Exactly. That is has no face and is not made up of individuals like ourselves. So that is a good preface to the conversation. Degrowth is a theory which I feel like government conversations is central to. Mm -hmm. It's a highly economic theory, but government probably is second to that because we're trying to imagine a future with almost an entirely different governing structure from what we're used to. Sure. That's how I would phrase it. So... Do you want to tell me what does degrown government look like to you? Okay, well, I started off by trying to define governance. It's a good we've, place we've to defined, start. We've defined degrowth in other episodes, so I won't go over that. But to define governance, um, when you Google it, it comes up with the National Geographic definition. I like that. Which is <laughs> the role of government is creating and enforcing the rules of a society, defense, foreign affairs, the economy, and public services. Mm. Okay, that seems pretty pretty inclusive, pretty much how I would define it, just by yeah. looking around us. Something that bothers me is that we don't get these words defined to us or these concepts defined to us properly in school. Mm -hmm. Let's say government, let's say economics, let's say even education, they're just defined implicitly by saying, oh, government, you want to know what government is? Mm -hmm. That's what we have. Yeah. And we, so we in that way, we never learn of anything outside of it. Because mm -hmm. that's it's kind of like when um, kids in, a, in an abusive household grow up mm -hmm. they never know that that wasn't normal mm -hmm. so i feel like that's what education that's how it defines government to us yeah i mean we don't know of government other than a parliament in a democracy exactly. in a big country that's all we know because that's all we've ever experienced and been taught yeah. the different levels federal municipal mm -hmm. provincial at least in canada that's and the balances that each one of those has other definitions i found were one I like to take collective action to better the lives of the population it serves. Mm, I like that as well. Kind of an optimistic definition, yeah, I would certainly. say. Or an idealistic one. It's a and bit more of a mission statement than anything. Well, that's what definitions should be, though, yeah. for, a, for an organization. <laughs> yeah. And this quote I found from C.S. Lewis, he said, It is easy to think the state has a lot of different objects, military, political, economic, and whatnot. But in a way, things are much simpler than that. The state exists simply to promote and to protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in this life. Mm. A husband and wife chatting over a fire, a couple of friends having a game of darts in a pub, a man reading a book in his own room or digging in his own garden. That is what the state is there for. And mm. unless they are helping to increase and prolong such moments, 
all the laws, parliaments, armies, courts, police, economics, etc., are simply a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a longer elucidation of the quote of the definition I just said, which is to take collective action to better the lives of the population it serves. But mm-hmm. I, I, C.S. Lewis is obviously very good at composing these images mm. that make it seem so much more vivid and oh yeah, that, that is what a government should be for, those moments, preserving those moments. Yeah, the other day you were playing chess and you said, you have to remember the point is to capture the king. Yes, exactly. And I feel like with politics exactly. and government, it's like, you have to remember the point is to just help people, but we get mm-hmm. caught up in, what's this policy? How is that going to interact with all these different things? And especially the infighting. We're caught in yeah. the, um, the partisanship. Yeah, so you that's forget what I mean. to, You forget to try and capture the king, mm-hmm. to even try. Yeah. Degrown government to me, is kind of what you said, just a government whose aim it is to help people. But when we say government, we don't mean Parliament Hill, like we're Canadians, so it's like we don't mean Parliament Hill, or for me, that's not what I mean when I'm talking about degrowth. I'm talking about basically community leadership Mm -hmm. and governance that way of we want to govern ourselves. Democracy and degrowth are inseparable in my eyes, there's probably two camps within degrowth, in my opinion. There's like the anarchists and there's the people who really are into a bit more structure. Yeah. It can work both ways, like in different places, because mm-hmm. degrowth, the government's not going to be the same across the world. Yeah, because well, let's just, let me just define those two, those two camps within the degrowth that yeah. you said. So we said, like, <laughs> what does degrowth governance look like? So we're mm-hmm. kind of leaning on the existing ideas for this. To answer mm-hmm. this question, I suppose. I mean, of course, we're going to answer it ourselves, but in terms of what degrowth acolytes think government should look like is mm-hmm. kind of what we're answering. So one vision that I found from the website, which fits into the more anarchist mm-hmm. camp that you mentioned, uh, this is a quote from degrowth.org, 100% decentralized, autonomous, convivial communities of people consuming no more than they need, sharing mm-hmm. as much as possible, treating each other with compassion, fairness, respect, no central state power, no police, no borders, no masters and servants, no conspicuous consumption, no oppression. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about that quote earlier this morning, we said that's basically the Shire from Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So that's like the one vision. Mm-hmm. And then the other vision, I don't have a quote for it, but you said more structure. Basically what we're talking about is a bigger government who can mm-hmm. stop corporations from doing what they're doing and growing as they're growing. Yes. And therefore kind of degrowing like that. Yeah, so those would probably look like really, really pure democracies. There's never going to be a completely pure democracy, but a lot more people are able to vote and participate. The voters are informed. You know the politicians is kind of like a key to it, the people who are representing you to defend your community against the big corporations or against people who are looking to exploit your community or the people around you. Degrown government, to me, looks a lot more horizontal than it is right now. Okay. Right now, I feel like we, you could never access Trudeau. Yeah, that tr- Justin Trudeau. That's why the first <laughs> the first line of my phone was, "I've never seen my leaders." Yeah, so but if it was horizontal, crazy. it's like you would know, you would know the people helping make the decisions. You'd be helping make the decisions, mm-hmm. and the governance would be. It's referred to by one philosopher as inclusive democracy. So right now we look at democracy and we just think of politics, political democracy. But there's also economic, social, and ecological democracy. Of course, Which yeah. right now it's like we vote in the politicians, but then from there, like, we don't have a say in economic policy and 
environmental regulations. Like they make all those decisions. Because of course it's more efficient. It's too, mm-hmm. um, with the size of countries as they are, mm-hmm. you can't have a referendum for every economic yeah. decision or ecological decision that we want to make. Exactly. But the thing is, in such a large country, an ecological decision in Alberta isn't going to impact us in Nova Scotia that much. So it's like, shouldn't you consult the Albertans? And then if you're making a decision in like the Montreal So you're saying area, more, more decentralized power. Yeah. More um, provincial and even city mm-hmm. mayoral power. Yeah. And like breaking down the barriers that we have to those consultations right now, because I'm sure there's consultations held in our cities no one feels like they're going to be heard if they go to them. Mm-hmm. It might be inaccessible because it's like we work 40 or more hours a week. So it's like, why would I want to go spend like three hours at this yeah, drawn out bureaucratic? Yeah, like, exactly. And there's a distrust anyway. Yeah. Like, why would I go there? They're not going to, they don't care mm-hmm. what I have to say. Kind exactly. Of so that's like, these are all barriers to democracy and to, in my opinion, what I think a degrown government should look like because we should just feel like our voices matter mm-hmm. because that's, I feel like the big lie that we've been told, the construct, which is stopping us from getting anything done. Definitely. I mentioned the big countries there. I'm of the opinion that countries are generally just too big, especially well, yeah. Canada and the USA. Like when mm-hmm. they're that big, for instance, people in America, I feel would identify more as a New Yorker mm-hmm. or a Californian mm-hmm. or a Texan than they do as even as an American. Like the local mm-hmm. identity comes first and foremost. And I always say, what makes someone in British Columbia in Canada and someone in Nova Scotia share a nationality? Because mm-hmm. the landmass is so huge and the cultures from coast to coast are wildly different. Mm-hmm. I think some things being centralized makes a lot of sense. But mm-hmm. when it comes to governance, the main thing I don't like is this word mess. Mm-hmm. Mess surveillance, mess consumerism it always i find detracts from the idea of the individual individual Mm -hmm. agency an example i had is why are curriculums mandated Mm -hmm. why should governments taking any of the three definitions i said at the start actually the national geographic one the c.s lewis quote or the one that says to take collective action to better the lives of the population it serves Mm -hmm. why would a government mandated curriculum for public education Mm -hmm. how does that do those things that's not about bettering lives at that point i think Mm -hmm. What I think their thinking was would be, well, we want everyone to get a good, equal education. If you live in Canada, you should learn these basic things. But it doesn't make sense to, like, <laughs> to be learning about, like, there's just, there'd be specialized things that would make a lot more sense if you live in a fishing village versus if you live in a big city. Well, yeah, I mean, of course there's that. There's the local the localization. I'm not talking so much about the fact that the curriculum is the same across the country. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that it's mandated that I don't like. Okay. You know, the teachers don't get to choose what they teach at all. Mm-hmm. At which point, I don't know how accurate the word teacher can even be, mm-hmm. unfortunately for them. No, that's, okay, I see what you mean. That certainly makes sense. Teachers should have a lot more empowerment and liberty to use techniques perhaps that they prefer. Like, I know a teacher who she's doing a degree right now in outdoor education, and it's a thing, like you can get the degree in Canada but it's impossible to like use the degree because it's not integrated into the curriculum right now. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to either like sneak it into her classes and like little ways, like there's no like outdoor education class that she could actually teach because it's not an option. 
So I mentioned, and I think you agree, some things that aren't right now should be decentralized. Some things that aren't right now should be centralized or mm -hmm. um, the federal state should have a bit more power or at mm -hmm. least act with a bit more teeth than it currently does. Yeah. I think we're going to agree that it's regulation mm -hmm. of environmental acts through corporations mm -hmm. and economic ones too. I always thought when Disney acquired Fox, yeah, I was like, well, that shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. That shouldn't have happened. Things like that. Mm -hmm. I was looking into some examples of when the government did intervene to stop things. And taxation, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly. Because social security is important no matter what size, how how like convivial we're living. There's always going to be people who get sick or who there's something like tragic happens. You're going to need intervention from some type of organizing power. And the thing is, like, even if we all shrunk our communities down to the Shire, we'd still need to interact because you can't grow the same foods. Like, you can't grow, like, basic things, really, in some parts of the country or some parts of the world. So, like, there's still going to be trade and there's still going to be... Supply lines, yeah. of course, yeah. But it needs to be governed because I feel like if we said, okay, tomorrow we're waking up, everyone's living in the Shire, we'd get back to where we are today in, like, Very 100 quickly. or 200 years. Yep. Because it'd be like, well, then this one shire they have, they're sitting on a gold mine, so they're going to become the rich shire, and then everything's going to... Or everyone's going to go there for gold, and yeah. there's going to be a war or something like that. Mm -hmm. I was talking with someone the other day about like communes and how governance works in those, because I've, I don't know anyone who's lived in a commune, but there are quite a few across Canada, I believe, of like different levels of... Autonomy. Yeah, of autonomy. And she, she knew someone who lived in a commune and said it was really good. It was a commune of like people who were new to Canada. So they immigrated from like all over the world and they shared like repairs. They all had like very similar houses. They all worked just normal jobs with them would like kind of pool their money. Um, and she said it was really great and an awesome sense of community for this person that she knew. But then, for example, it was like, if you wanted to make a change to the inside of your house, like it would have to be approved. Mm. And oftentimes it wouldn't be approved yeah. because it would like make your house look nicer than your neighbors. And like, that seems like too extreme. Well, yeah. Well, like in the suburbs, like yeah. in Christmas with the cranks. Exactly. And that's what I liked about the C.S. Lewis quote. He was, um, it was a very kind of idealistic quote about the vision of the state and its role in life, mm -hmm. but he was still espousing private ownership. Mm -hmm. A man reading a book in his own room or digging mm -hmm. in his own garden. That was part of his, his vision. And yet, yeah. he, of course, was not against things like community, camaraderie, mm -hmm. collaboration, helping one another, yeah. taxation. And I think this kind of is a good lead into the next question. You don't need to live in a commune mm -hmm. for all the good things you just mentioned to happen. And also, we've gone so far that like everything's privatized almost. Even knowledge is privatized like you can't access certain information and data without paying or having some kind of a barrier taken down so it's like somewhere between complete privatization and complete community ownership we just need some of our commons back would be an awesome place to start i think and as you said this is a good transition into our next question which is the next question is the pros and cons of the ubi the universal basic income I don't have a lot to say on this because when I tried to research it, there's not a lot of research on it. 
So I, yeah. I, I, it was barely enough for me to form an opinion. The only opinion mm-hmm. I could really form was, no, there's not enough research on it. <laughs> so I would be against it in, in mm-hmm. most cases. The, the clamor for a UBI has obviously sprung up in these very specific late-stage capitalist American working-class conditions. Minimum wage isn't giving us enough money to pay rent, support our families, healthcare, mm-hmm. pay taxes, pay for our cars, mm-hmm. enjoy life or yes. live life, etc. And this is leading to healthcare crises, drug addiction, general malaise. Mm-hmm. I understand this. And I understand why it's such an appeal to people. Yeah, certainly. But, okay, this is a weird comparison, but it reminds me of when I hear about extremist religious groups who recruit people who are just in the mud. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, there's the deity, mm-hmm. you know? And so they're very, I won't say gullible, but everyone's so desperate to believe in something and to, mm-hmm. to cling on to something and say, this will be the savior. Mm-hmm. And... The UBI is so understandable. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll all get money. Yeah, and you can literally, like, you can think about it. If you were given an extra $1,000 a month, I know exactly what I'd do with it. And so does, I think, most people. Yeah, but my issue is, being not an economist, it seems like these large-scale studies or even projections, even models, mm-hmm. haven't really been done to, I would say, an acceptable level to trial something, mm-hmm. is that you don't know the long-term ramifications on an economy of yeah. something like this. Or on a, or in a culture, but just speaking economically, because it's an economic proposition, I'm not sure about it. And there are things which do fall into the category of welfare or social security, mm-hmm. which have been proven to work. Yes. And which I even think will be more of an easy sell. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the UBI is um, is overlooking things which are maybe more practical, efficient, proven. Yeah. Like. Free healthcare. Parks. Universal housing. Education. <laughs> Food. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, basically what a UBI purports to do is, okay, everyone's going to be able to afford housing, food, healthcare, like kind of proactive healthcare especially, and therefore healthcare costs will go down because everyone's able to eat yeah, um, police costs will go down. Yeah, course, because everyone will. But when you think about it, investing those money in those specific institutions, in my opinion, seems like it'd be a bit more helpful. Because as I always look to like Sweden and Finland. The Nordic model. The Nordic model. Not socialism, though. Socialized capitalism. Yeah. The social democrats. Mm-hmm. My favorite example from those countries is they decided, hey, let's build nice houses and let everyone have a nice house. And then obviously there was no homelessness. And then if you have a house to shower in, to prepare food in, you can get a job much easier because if you're trying to get a job from nothing or like you're struggling to make ends meet to pay rent, you're not going to be able to get a job that you like Mm -hmm. and feel empowered in. That's my favorite solution that I feel like is just like would be an easy sell. But the thing about the UBI is that like everyone gets it. So it's an easy sell to people who make 100K a year, honestly, because it's (laughs) like, well, I can invest that in my GME stocks or what have you. Another couple pros that I saw for UBI, which honestly like made sense to me, is that it would encourage a higher minimum wage because 
one of the cons people always say is, well, no one's going to be motivated to work. But it's like you have to have it kind of at this at this level where it's like you're not giving everyone $5,000 a month. You're giving everyone like a few, like enough to pay rent and food and so on, like to meet your basic needs. But then minimum wage would have to be higher to attract people and retain people. And right now I feel like minimum wage is so artificially low to try and keep commodity prices low that no one's able to survive off and have to have multiple jobs or like many incomes for a home. And it pays care workers or like unpaid workers. Because right now, I, at least in my community, I knew so many people who they had to quit their job to take care of their like elderly parent or their child or they... Or they are a mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like they deserve to receive money, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because mainly because of the way minimum wages, because you used to have one income households were like the norm. But now it's like you need two incomes, basically, for the most part, in order to run a household with children in it. I feel like allowing stay-at-home parents would be so valuable to a society. Imagine how, like... Of course, of course. Um, that, yeah. That's an investment that society needs to make, right? Yeah, and much the like, kids. Much like university education. Mm-hmm. It's better in the long run to subsidize that. Yeah. So that you have university-educated yes. graduates. But we forget that. We're of like, course. well, what's the value of a stay-at-home parent? It's like the kids are going to be so empowered and cared for and they're going to be great members of society someday. Yeah, (laughs) we forget about it. Well, it's kind of like that thing. We forget that the aim is to capture the king. Yeah. It's like the aim of society is to always be better generation by generation Mm -hmm. so that each new kid that's born has a better life than their parents. That's the, that's Mm -hmm. the main goal. It's like humanity's relay. Mm-hmm. Like that is the overarching millions of years. Like that's the goal is to mm-hmm. always be improving. Exactly. So when people say, oh, well, why would we subsidize um, stay-at-home parents? Mm-hmm. What's the good in that? <laughs> so, well, that is the good. Yes, exactly. And we lose sight of it when you're going to work and you're in Willy Wonka and you're making toothpaste caps all day. Mm. You're like well, this is the real work. This is what's important is toothpaste caps. But what's really important is you come home, get to make your little factory mm-hmm. out of the toothpaste caps yep. with your boy, <laughs> with your boy Charlie. <laughs> the references are flowing today. Yeah, they sure are. One of my favorite, this is completely off topic, but one of my favorite um, like internet memes is how everyone hates Grandpa Joe. Is that his name? I didn't know everyone hates Everyone Grandpa hates Joe. him because he pretends to be bedridden and then when they get the ticket the, when they get the ticket to the factory, suddenly he's up and dancing, jumps out of bed. So it's tap dancing all over the place. And everyone's like <laughs> <laughs> Grandpa Joe. And he goes, Oh, uh, I'm healed. Or whatever was even wrong with him. Just being old and sad, I guess. Yeah. Maybe it's some kind of metaphor. Maybe that's what the UBI would do. I don't know. <laughs> are you so are you for or against? I'll say personally I'm against it. I think the efforts, the political uh, cachet, is that what you say? I think so. Like your political um, standing mm-hmm. and all that work and enthusiasm should be into improving everything else which is proven to work and then other oh, things are still messed up, mm-hmm. let's consider UBI. I think it should go like that. Yeah. For instance, how are taxes even being spent now? Fix mm-hmm. that before we work on taxing the rich, I would say. Yeah, because I feel like for a UBI to work, it's like the healthcare system has to work. Right now, no matter how much money you have, well, I'm speaking in Canada, I know it's much different in the States, but it's like 
healthcare is still free for everyone. It's kind of messed up for almost everyone. Hmm. Like a thousand dollars a month isn't going to help you afford a doctor in Canada. Like doctors in Canada are hard to get, basically. And depending on where you live, for sure. Yeah. So I think some. I think UBI to a degree, I would be for. But I think it's like it doesn't need to be universal. <laughs> it could be like everyone who makes under a certain amount a year, because it's like there is certainly a point where it would just be invested in stocks or invested in pretty frivolous things. Hmm. But I think it would be incredibly useful for someone without a job. But we have that. Like, it's unemployment. Right. So I think it's hard to say. I'm kind of for it. But, like, I think you just feel like there's a lot of alternatives as well, which might just take more effort. Or more imagination. Like, this Mm -hmm. is such an easy sell. Yeah. It's three letters. Mm -hmm. Everyone can just kind of shout that. Yeah. It's like there are things which aren't so concise and tweetable and hashtagable, mm-hmm. which might work just as well or better and proven. Yeah, and UBI isn't going to change the imaginary of the population. People aren't all of a sudden going to be like, we love stay-at-home parents. We love artists. We love... That's a good point. Um, the people who are sweeping the streets. Like, no one's really going to... It's not going to change the, the that mindset. Kind of, that kind of dynamic. And also, just going back to the Degar and governance, we didn't touch on law... Oh, we didn't touch on law. Which is an important branch of government. Yeah. I wanted to mention that law should have sustainability as a central motive. Yeah, of course. Ecological and also social sustainability. Mm -hmm. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know if this means giving trees rights. I don't think so, Mm -hmm. because I don't think trees have rights in the way that we consider humans to have rights. Mm -hmm. And also because, as I consider myself something of an environmental pragmatist, there's a certain amount of pollution and degradation which everyone is fine with. Mm -hmm. Like, no one's going to say you can't emit any greenhouse gases ever Mm -hmm. because the earth can handle some. Yeah. So there is some amount of trees that can be cut down always Mm -hmm. and water that can be polluted and air that can be polluted always, Mm -hmm. which is sustainably done. Mm -hmm. So that's why I don't think trees should have rights. But I don't know how legally it it would matter, but there should be more laws, of course, protecting natural capital yeah. and specifically government should be should have more teeth to enforce these regulations mm-hmm. i think you mentioned like the two camps of degrowth visions mm-hmm. there's also kind of this paradox which i think is actually the biggest camp somewhere between them where we need really big government to mm-hmm. make change so that we don't need really big government. Yeah, that's literally the introductory statement of how degrowth was introduced to me was exactly that. It said, a government that gets so big that it can disappear. Oh, yeah, that's... A, that's a, that's how, like, the teacher presented it. That's a much catchier like, way of saying it. I was like, yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm up for. Because it's like, I feel like in a perfect society, I'd love an anarchy. I'd be like, this is so great. Everyone's just, like, <laughs> oh vibing. But, but it's like, that's... I'm going to say, I'm going to make this firm statement that it's impossible mm. that to exist within our lifetimes for sure. Mm. And maybe ever because of human nature. human nature. Yeah. I think the thing with laws and giving streams and things rights is I think streams should have rights. But also, I know there's been a few class action lawsuits, which is like a group of people suing a corporation or like appealing to the government to actually enforce the laws because the government 
so frequently just will not enforce their laws. Yeah. And it, the thing is, it's often like the government. That's why I started by mentioning the individuals matter a lot. Mm-hmm. Like who who is voted in matters more than the system. Because even if you have this I- idealistic, these laws, let's say, mm-hmm. if there's rampant corruption, mm-hmm. nothing good is ever going to happen. Yeah. But- so we need to somehow get better at electing good people. And I know mm-hmm. that's not a hot take. And I haven't really thought about how. Maybe that should be a mm-hmm. question for next week. Yeah. How can we reward good politicians and good yeah. ideas? Yeah, certainly. Something like that. And kindness. Yeah. But, sorry, I'm going to finish my statement as well. The class action lawsuits were on behalf of future generations. Yep. Which I think is like a key part of future governance is like, that's what sustainability is, considering the next generation and three generations down the line, because we don't do that. Yeah, it shouldn't be some really creative loophole that you have to find in the world. Oh, yeah. actually, this is on behalf of the future generations. Gotcha. Yeah. It shouldn't have to be like that. This should be exactly. It should be baked into the law. Mm-hmm. Sustainability and the law should just be. <laughs> it should just be enforced. I don't know. It's frustrating. I went to one hearing once, and I was like, "You're suing." It was the government versus a government department trying to and then there was another party which was like the lawyers who were saying government your government department is breaking its own laws can you can you like stop that and they were like well i don't know they're just hurting these species and it it was wild i don't know definitely baking sustainability into law because right now it's like i feel like a lot of the laws are kind of frivolous they're probably mainly car related are mainly the laws that we know (laughs) so get rid of cars it'll free up some some slots for yeah, there's for not new like laws. a finite number of laws, though. No, I know. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> you just, we go through this whole episode and you think it's like that. There's a hundred laws. You say, well, if we had these laws, but what about these other ones? Well, there's, there's ten commandments. <laughs> We're going to have to cut one out and make space for another one, you know? <laughs> okay. Sorry, getting getting a little bit off topic. And speaking of off topic, <laughs> do you want to know the species of the week? You mean the, the organism. organism of the week? The organism of the week. It is... The moringa. Okay. Can you guess what a moringa is? Uh, an animal. Nope. Tree. Tree, yeah. So a moringa, a.k.a. the drumstick tree, Ooh. is the most nutrient-dense plant on the planet. Whoa. So it's like a superfood. Oh, you can eat it? Yeah. Okay. You yeah. can eat the tree. Yeah, because I was thinking about degrown futures and like community gardens and food sovereignty, which I was going to talk about today, but then I, but then I didn't. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I'll like get our, to it later. That's like our podcast <laughs> motto or catchphrase. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about food sovereignty a lot, which maybe I'll talk about next week. Maybe that can be what's food sovereignty, a good question. And I was like, what's important is eating nutrient-dense food because sometimes in a day I'll eat a full pack of rice cakes and it's like, this was inefficient. <laughs> You That's know? your grandma snack. Yeah, grandma now. You called it a mom snack before. Anyway. You're aging. Um, I, I, I always see these TikToks, which are... <laughs> there are X number of edible plants on Earth. They're mm-hmm. like 150 million or, or like some crazy big yeah. number. And we only eat three of them. Or yeah. Like that. And I'm like, yeah, we should probably eat more. Yeah, exactly. So this, this lovely plant, it's a flowering tree. There's 13 species. So Moringa is the genus and there's 13 species, and it's tropical slash subtropical. And I'll show you two pictures, okay? Okay. This is my favorite one of the trees. All the other ones kind of look like cartoon trees, but then this is one of them. Oh, wow. Okay. 
it looks like like there are trees like that in Donkey Kong. So it has a really chunky bottom, like a radish, mm-hmm. and it narrows towards the top. These grow in Africa, right? Yes. Into the green leaves. Wait, I believe they do. They look really similar to ones that you'd see on like... A safari. A safari. Yeah. Typical. And these are the plants. These are why... Or these are the the fruits. Okay. That's why they're called drumstick trees. Yeah, they look like really long green beans. Yeah, green drumsticks. So, pretty cool. You can eat all parts of the plants, the root, the leaves, the I think, bark. I think we should eat more roots, but I'll talk about that next week in our food, mm-hmm. food episode. Yeah. All right, is next week a food episode? Well, you said we're going to talk about food sovereignty, yeah, so we I are. said we're Hang going to talk about food. Sorry. So, yeah, that's the organism of the week, folks. My first, my first stab at it. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next time we should do that as if you're coming up for, like... Um, Poetry. Yeah. So today I'm presenting the moringa. Yeah, exactly. Moringa, moringa. Where are your trees? Okay. Let's get into the third question of the day, which is how does commodification impact the autonomy of individuals? Commodification. C-O-M-M-O-D-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. Commodification. The transformation of goods, services, ideas, nature, personal information, or people into Mm. commodities or objects of trade. Uh, That's a definition from Wikipedia. Excellent, excellent. Which is really the only one that matters. I'm not even joking. Yeah. Wikipedia is a commons. Exactly. Yeah. It's tended by its users. Mm -hmm. If the definition isn't democratic like that, what's Mm -hmm. even the point of it? What's the point? So, commodification, my arch nemesis, besides cars. (laughs) Really a lot of words start with C. Cucumbers. Mm. Another C word, Kanye. I have a quote from him. <laughs> um, or just yay now, actually. I was listening to an interview that he gave a few days ago, and I thought this quote was relevant about commodification. He said, we used to have water fountains. Now there's a plastic problem from all the water bottles, which I think is just a really good mm-hmm. illustration of what's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like there used to just be fountains yeah. in the ancient world. Yeah, exactly. In the not-so-ancient world. Mm-hmm. But now if you want water, like you literally have to buy it for the most part. <clears throat> because even if there's a water fountain, it's usually full of sludge. Or it's just gross, <laughs> you know? Because no one like takes care of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, they should be stone. Yeah. Isn't there, like, in Italy, I believe, there's water fountains and it's like free water, but then there's like... Sparkling, sparkling water, water that you have to pay a little bit for. Yeah. But still not a lot. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot over the place. That's so crazy to me. And it's not like they're new. They're just ancient. They're very old, yeah. Yeah. Commodification... How does it ruin our autonomy? Well, I had three kind of avenues, which are commodification of self, which means self-realization through purchases. Mm. I'm not cool unless I buy the clothes that make me look yeah. cool, like that, basically. Commodification of autonomy. We've mentioned this in previous episodes, Wally. Another mm-hmm. good example is just adults say who say they can't cook. Yeah, it's like confidence. Yeah, of course. this is also a problem with parenting, but... I mean, if you can't cook, it probably means you've been relying on too many restaurants, fast foods, or what are they called? Microwave meals. Yeah, that's never, it's not our fault. No, 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 of course not. Yeah. It, it isn't the fault of the people in Wally. Mm-hmm. It's not their fault, it's their ancestors' fault. Mm-hmm. And commodification of companionship. Mm-hmm. So, this is how products today fill our void. Mm-hmm. And when I say products, I mean most movies, most TV shows, most music, most podcasts. Including this one, not including this one because we don't make any money off of it, but 
Uh, he'll charge for it. Most things which masquerade as art today mm-hmm. aren't art. They're, they're products. Mm-hmm. I feel like commodification just creates this insanely unstable system because I was thinking about it, and it's like if everyone decided we're going to rebel, we're going to start a revolution, we're yes. going to... A violent revolution. Or just a revolution like ones we've seen in the past that aren't violent, but okay. like... Huge protests, like not buying things. Strikes. Strikes. The government could say, or not even the government, corporations who would likely be the ones who were being attacked because that's what we don't want. They'd be like, well, <laughs> we're going to not give you food, so you're yeah. going to starve within a week and a half because no one you knows have how no to food. Farm. This is where I was going to talk about food sovereignty. <laughs> but no one knows how to farm. And like, even if you knew how... Where are you going to farm sufficient food for you and your neighbors? Most people live in apartments. Yeah. So that's just like one simple thing. Like they could just say, we control you. Like the commodities control us. It's like if we decided we're not going to purchase clothes ever again. Yeah. But then all of our clothes end up being tattered. It's like we rely on, even if we knew how to loom fabric, it's like we would still need access to the the sheep or the cotton or what have you. Yeah, all the specialized loom parts you have to buy off Amazon. Yeah. Like the loom bands. Yeah. I think this is why there's such a romance today about going off the grid, 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 grid. Mm-hmm. It seems like generationally it used to be, can't wait till I retire and I can go fishing and go in my boat all the time. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, if I got enough money, I would just be able to take care of myself. Like that's mm-hmm. the goal. I wouldn't have to rely on these power companies, for instance. Mm-hmm. I'd have solar panels of my own. Yes. Things like that. Exactly. So that's how commodification, I feel like, ruins our autonomy. It's like we can't access most things without purchasing it. And that goes as far as mainly, like, leisure is a big part of it. It's like we can't relax without spending money. That's as basic as buying a book, as paying your Netflix subscription, paying your internet bills. And that's one of the most dangerous parts of commodification in my mind because leisure in particular everyone used to be kind of alienated at work you'd still like kind of it sucked it was hard but then when you'd go to relax you'd go to the theater Mm. you would go well you play soccer like behind your workplace or or you'd have a barbecue you'd hang out with your neighbors something like that that's why i mean like companionship has been commodified Mm -hmm. it's like we just go and be alone that's how we entertain ourselves or, or we hang on discord or reddit mm-hmm. or facebook yeah or instagram and then those go down and people are like oh what like i remember when whatsapp went down mm-hmm. a few weeks ago or a couple months ago yeah it was a meltdown and i know whatsapp is important for a lot of people working mm-hmm. you know professional communications and things like yeah. that but it just shows our reliance on mm-hmm. companies for the most basic of things like communication yeah the other day ones. Um, it was the time change, but then two weeks in advance, um, Bell, I think it was Bell, they, for some reason, all of the phones that were on that network went back a week early. Which is a media so company a bunch of Canada, people, I should say that. Yeah, and like a telecommunication company, yeah. So when people just like overslept for an hour <laughs> or got up an hour early, I can't remember, fallbacks, like they got up an hour early and they're like, what the? Because, because their phones had gone back. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they had. Because we rely on the alarm. Yeah. And it's like, we just have very little autonomy. I don't know. It stresses me out. Makes me want to be, makes me want to go off the grid. But then you have to remember, we need 
we need change, so we have to keep functioning. Oh, you on the have grid. to remember. I don't know how to go off the grid. Yeah. <laughs> to, to you know to speak humbly, mm-hmm. I don't know how to raise our own food. Most of us have never killed an animal or seen mm-hmm. an animal being killed. Yeah. I mean, if we're vegetarian, we don't know how to grow it mm-hmm. properly. I mean, you can grow like everyone has a little herb garden in their apartment, mm-hmm. but no one knows how to till the land. Yeah. That kind of information is not really, well, not really taught to us for one thing. Yeah, certainly. This is my final commodification thought is even down to like the most intellectual and creative pursuits have been commodified. Like governments outsource their policymaking to experts. Like they pay people to make the policy and then they approve it or whatever. Okay. And it's like creative people will like outsource the design of their products. Like we'll say, we'll use H&M as an example. Like they outsource their design. Like they pay for it. It's not like there's someone at H&M who's just like passionate about fashion. It's just like everything's outsourced. Everything's a commodity. It's not art. It's a product. Yes. Or what I was saying about the movies. Exactly. And in a degrown society, art would be art. Knowledge would be knowledge. Food would be food. And innovation still exists. Exactly. The there's still innovation in science. I still think we should explore mm-hmm. space, the oceans. We should still be ever trying to improve our understanding of mm-hmm. consciousness, the universe. But innovation on the consumer level, or I won't say consumer, on the individual level, mm-hmm. should make us smarter and stronger and also mm-hmm. on a collective scale. And right now it weakens us and it makes us dumber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's where all the, what do they call it? Research and development. That's mm-hmm. what all the research and development today is, is working towards. I'm trying to find new commodities to sell to us. And make us more reliant. Yeah. Like the Pringles. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when we were reading about Pringles and how scientifically calculated it is to try and make them more more addictive mm-hmm. but so that you can't just have one? And people treat yeah. it lightly. It's like, oh, you know, Pringles, I can't stop at just one. It's like, yeah, they're... <laughs> there was a team that, just, exactly. that made that happen. <laughs> all all the like... way down to the, the feel of it, the crunch, mm-hmm. the sound. They didn't do that so that you could have a better experience eating Pringles. Mm-hmm. They did that so that you would buy more Pringles. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a question here for next week, but I'm not okay. totally sure. No, yeah, there is. Yeah, I'm trying to come up with it of just like, like what commodities would remain in a degrown society? Or like what things would remain, what things could you buy versus would you just trade and like be a given? I don't think that's phrased well enough, but I'll try and describe what I mean of like, I feel like in a degrown society, in my mind, you wouldn't have to pay for food. It's like, you might not grow it yourself. Hmm. Um, but it's like there'd be farmers who would be paid to make the food. A barter economy, you mean, on a local scale? A little bit, yeah. Mm. And maybe you'd pay for your food, but it would just be like a monthly, it'd be basically a tax. Everyone's taxed $50 and you get food. And I know in like, um, in commun- under communism, when that's been like trialed, that's probably a bad word for it, failed <laughs> around the world. That was like the, one of the most brutal parts of it was like you'd have to wait in line yeah, for food get, for two your, or three hours. Yeah, you get one potato for the week. Yeah, but it's just like... I don't really like that idea so I'm trying to... Food would be a bit more of a community thing. I don't know what I mean. Okay, but well, like, I just think the community thing in general... I remember, I love this quote. I don't remember where it came from, but someone said... Where I come from, it was... I think it was an African person who came from a not very well-off country... They said, where I come from, we don't let our neighbors starve. Mm-hmm. And this is a very poor country, a very poor community. Mm-hmm. Because it was a more, more of a collective and tribe-like mentality, mm-hmm. which is just very different from the 
the dog eat dog mentality here. So maybe my how question to, how is how to grow that, how to build that, how to return to that, maybe. Yeah, how to like return to community. Hmm. Also, I think my question was kind of what would the economic system look like in degrowth? Like, what would money be? What would money be? That's a good one. Yeah. Well, you had a really crazy idea a few weeks ago. I don't think we mentioned it on the podcast of, well, I'll save it for next week. Yeah, I think that's where my question was going, the answer. That's an interesting but thought. Teaser. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I had a good idea. That's the cliffhanger. For once. Yeah. Sorry it took so long to get to that question, but what would the role of money be in a degrowned society? Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye.